Welcome to It's No Secret. I'm Catherine Cuellar. In March 1990, South by Southwest held its fourth annual music conference in Austin. Twang Twang Shaka Boom's festival showcase on the original Austin City Limits set was highly anticipated, with more than half a dozen different major record labels scouting them. Bassist Jeff Haley recalls, The reason why we recorded Miso in 24 hours was so that we would have it ready for South by Southwest. For artists and repertoire music industry executives called A&R, the band re-recorded My Emaciated Heart and Fish Sticks, adding 10 other songs to a demo recording which became Miso Twangy. To celebrate the cassette's release, during South by Southwest, Twang also played a free public show in store at Hastings Records on Guadalupe, also known as The Drag. Their first six months had been a whirlwind, recalls percussionist Chris Searles. He lived at Taos Co-op, basically across the street, a block down from the West Mall. And when we played the West Mall, we were looking at the back door of the Cactus Cafe, and that at that time was the domain of Butch Hancock and Towns Van Zandt and other people like that, really, really famous singer-songwriters. And David said, we need to play Cactus Cafe. So we played on the West Mall once, twice, maybe three times, and then we marched into the guy that ran Cactus, famous Griff Lundberg. Told him we wanted to play, got ourselves in on a Tuesday or something, and that had started to take off. And it attracted Gavin Lance, who was a mover and shaker in the Austin original music community. And Gavin connected us to French Smith and Mark Proct, they managed the Fabulous Thunderbirds. They produced, they signed us to a little management deal within probably 10 days or something. And Mark Proct, who managed the Fabulous Thunderbirds, had connections to CBS Records. And Mark connected us to a variety of A&R people. And Larry Hamby was the guy at CBS. And he came down to see us in our natural habitat Hastings on the drag, Larry walked in and saw the crowd of kids and heard maybe, you know, 40 seconds of music and then went back out and stood in front of the store and talked to Mark about how we needed to get these guys up to New York and we were going to sign them and they're going to be big. And at that time, there was a college music radio scene that people thought was going to be Nirvana, the thing that turned into millions and millions of sales and somebody was going to hit it and, you know, maybe we were it. David's neighbor in the Taos co-op, Tommy Tennant, remembered promotion of Twang's South by Southwest showcase with bassist Jeff Haley. Yeah, it was in March, and that was when it was so tiny. I remember David gave me a, a pass. Yeah, and there's little tickets. I have, my mom has one of the tickets. And they were, again, copied at Kinko's. Like we were handing out these. Can you imagine now at South by Southwest? Yeah, that's what blows That would my mind never and like, happen. And back no. then, I think the week-long all-access wrist pass, the one that David, went for like maybe a whopping $100 or something. Oh, it was less than that. That was like Yeah, I think it was 15 for the whole week. Oh. I really think it was. It was that cheap? I think so. Oh, my God. But now Nobody it's Nobody like, would pay more than $5 per night anyway, right? That's true, yeah. It was, things were so cheap back then. Soundman Jan Darbro and David's Taos neighbor Lee Tennant reminisced about the finale of Twang's South by Southwest Showcase in Austin with percussionist Chris Searles. Uh, South by Southwest, I think the first ones you guys played. The only. 
you know how it is. You get a huge crowd, South by Southwest, and this was in the uh, KUT studios. The crowd, of course, you have all that busy talk in between songs, you know, and stuff, and people. And while you're playing, you know, it's like clinking glasses, like any bar-type situation you're going. And this is your last song of that night. And as soon as those first two chords hit, the whole place just went deadly silent. Mm. And that just sticks in my head. I mean, it just was just... Boom. You could hear a pin drop between chords, between beats of the song. It's an unusual it was, experience. It was just total silence. And that just really struck me. And, and then David walks out in front of the microphone and sits down on the stairs and on the stage in front and just sings from there. And that crowd was just, ah. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of hope behind y'all's momentum. Yes. But I always always remember that particular night, and then that I'm just going, wow. I mean, that was just something. Something special. Yep. Yes. Something special. That was without a doubt when he he walked out and sang a, a cappella in that room. On the Austin City Limits stage at South by Southwest was not just funny and fun, but also breathtaking. David did um, without a doubt off mic. At the very end, yeah. and and like Bono, you know, walked out into the audience and and sang to that room, that giant room, and just was as natural as could be. And I mean, that to me is one of my favorite musical memories of my entire life. But the excitement of their South by Southwest debut did not prepare the band for their first performance in New York City, according to Jeff Haley. I'm sure we thought no matter what gets thrown at us, we got this and we were wrong. Like in all things, we really didn't take ourselves too seriously. And we certainly weren't going to take anyone else very seriously. We were just having fun and trying to be good. Our main objective was not to look cool or impress people. I don't know, three weeks later, we're in New York City. Still a teenager, it was percussionist Chris Searle's first trip to New York. As he told Jeff Haley, I guess that was probably April. We're up in New York City. So we played South by Southwest, and then we were up in, in Manhattan. And probably David had been there, but I was definitely a country boy in the city. And we had two goals. The number one goal was to see some jazz. Yep, And the number two goal was to make it to our audition. And we kind of figured it's a shoe-in and or if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And we yeah. weren't really focused on it as any big deal. We didn't rehearse for it. We didn't do anything, except we, we went and played on the street in front of Central Park for a few minutes. And it, suddenly it was like we were fish out of water, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll see you in the night, when the sunlight runs away from the freedom that I feel when the night comes, what a busy day! I can't wait to make. Maybe then I'll feel the freedom when I see you in May. And we'll live in the Atlantic Sea. September I will be a 
There's a little um, stage at the end of this long conference table that seats probably 25 people, like the Knights of the Round Table or something. Yeah. Because I play a large instrument, we had to rent a bass yeah. here in New York. You know, we probably got the bass there, probably. That's why in those pictures of of us playing on Central Park West, there's no Jeff playing. It's just you and David because there was no bass at that point. And so we got to the Black Rock and the bass is like extremely difficult to play. The strings are a mile high. Strike two, kind of. It looked pretty silly in New York City. And there were posters of Mariah Carey everywhere. <laughs> and New Kids on the Block. Yeah. And it was just like, well, we're not that kind of people, you know. We're not shiny, overly produced music people at all. But here we go. And the room fills up. The president, Tommy Matola, he walks in like the head of the Knights of the Round Table and sits kind of in the middle. And I mean, the entire. And the other guy, um, Don Einer, too. All of the top brass, all of the, the A&R staff, they're all there to hear what Larry had presented as the next big thing. And we start playing and like everything that could go wrong did go wrong including, best of all, when David made some sort of comment about Paul Simon, and Paul Simon had recently left the label to <laughs> put Graceland on Warner Brothers, which had sold, you know, 12 million copies or something. <laughs> and so that was painful for Mr. Matola. I think he made a joke about New Kids on the Block, too. Yeah, we thought, just like we felt about Poison or something like that, it was like anything that was overly schlocky was the antithesis of what we were about. Meanwhile, these were business model people. They were looking at moving units, and we had no concept of any of this stuff. So we play, and it's we the first about five time. songs, I think. Yeah, and it's the first time that it didn't feel good. You know, yeah. it just it's like we were out of our element. We couldn't figure out where the groove was among the three of us. That's we were basically was, playing to twenty corporate lawyers. It was a very cold stale environment and we had yeah you know, we were just not in our zone at all and we had never had that experience we'd certainly been challenged to fall before but it hadn't happened so it was even more of a like kind of fear response i think from the three of us internally and then the famous comment was made by mr matola which is so classic and new york classy where he said so, uh, you boys ever been to the Empire State Building? And we said, no, sir. We just got here yesterday. You know, we've been looking around a little bit. Well, uh, you got to get up there. Get a look around. Get the lay of the land. It'll probably be a pretty long time before you get back to New York. You know, <laughs> and every single briefcase closed and zipped up. <laughs> Meeting over. The audition was done. And about three minutes after that. Larry suddenly had to be somewhere. Yeah. He'd forgotten. <laughs> we still got our limo back to the airport. <laughs> but I remember Mark had this look on his face. You know, he was almost white, pale white. That was that. We we never spoke with Mr. Matola ever again. <laughs> and he instead chose to go with Mariah. Back home. Chris Searles and David Garza concluded their academic studies in the University of Texas Music Department after just two semesters. In May, Twang Twang Shaka Boom was featured nationally in the New York Times and locally on the cover of the Chronicle for a story on the best unsigned Austin acts, as major label success still eluded them. 
With his girlfriend and muse Gemma in the UK, David was pondering life without Twang. I've been so lonely since you've been away from me. I've been so lonely. It was uh, the summer, and my wonderful love of my life, who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, was gone back to her home, and I was alone in this crazy house. And I knew that I was gone. I was like, I don't want to be just playing acoustic guitar. I want to play electric guitar. And you can't play electric guitar in Twang because Twang's an acoustic band. And that, to me, that was justification to just quit this thing because it was a purity. I mean, I knew about boleros and Cuban music. I knew the sanctity of a guaguancó and a cowbell and a mongo and an upright bass and a cuatro. And what I was going to do was the equivalent of, like, CGI. And I knew that it was going to taint the purity of this stuff. And, and we all go through this stuff. And it was a time of purity. It was all this purity. So Hefe came over, and he was like, I had this song. And I'm like, oh, no. There ain't going to be no co-writing. That's no way. Because I'm the songwriter. I remember. And it was probably a great song. And we just, like, It wasn't a great song, Debbie. Well, we, but, 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 <laughs> you want to know the truth about that, though? Oh, sure. Gavin kind of put me up to that. <laughs> oh! Gavin's like, oh yeah, Jeff, you're the rocker, and, and David is the whatever David is. So he's like, yeah, we need that influence in the band. You should write a rock song. Speaking of the truth, I like to hear it once in a while. Just forget all your vanity. Butterflies are like butterflies. They just both die in a couple of days. And I'd like to thank Twang Twang for choosing this show to make their final appearance. When Michelle's final gig at the Pearl's um, radio thing is like October 1st. And there was the big Liberty Lunch one. Um, we yeah. played at Liberty Lunch a lot of times. But I mean, one of the final, I remember the news showing up for the Liberty Lunch gig. Because it was like y'all's last big venue gig because then it was like a couple weeks later that there was that other smaller thing but everyone else considered that like the last gig. I remember the news being there and like just being a huge line down the block to come see the last gig and towards the end of it Gemma and I we were like backstage on the side just like holding each other crying <laughs> uh, and just like oh this it's over like that was you know it was like an end of an era type of thing Honest words I like
Because I don't remember that stuff, to be honest. Because it, it was not a happy time. I mean, no one wants to be the guy that breaks up the band that everybody loves, and that was me. No one wants to be the guy that quits the band that everybody loves, and that was me. So why do I, of course I've blocked that out. The, 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 the vase is still tainted. You can still see where it was cracked and put back together. I've, I've always been the one that's messed it up. Bassist Jeff Haley recalls, I have lots of memories of that time, actually. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't think the vase is broken. Like, I don't, I don't think of it that way at all. No way. As soon as we started playing back together again, I was like, well, this is just, it's, it, it is endless. It is a circle. Like, it's just meant to be, like, Chris and I really did have your back 100%. Within a few years, they were jamming again. And in 1995, Twang played the Cactus Cafe and recorded and released new songs. He used to be a drummer, but now he's just a cook in a vegetarian hangout. For their 20th anniversary in December 2009, Twang Twang Shockaboom returned to New York City to play at Joe's Pub in the Public Theater. David shared with the audience his memory of their previous New York visit. We had a beautiful 11-month career. And we were flown up to New York City by CBS Records, and we saw thir uh, Third Base in the, in the lobby. And we went, wow! Woo! Third Base is in the lobby. We must have hit big time. Anyway, we had a little audition, and it, we failed it with flowers because we were punk rockers. Yeah! But Tommy Matola, they told us, good luck, brother. You'll never see New York again. Go to the Statue of Liberty now, because you ain't ever coming back to this town. And we said, all right, Mr. Mar Mr. Mariah Carey, wait 20 years, okay? So Mr. Matola, this gig's for you, brother. It's been 20 years, and, we, and uh, I love Chris, and I love Jeff, like big brothers. They're beautiful big brothers to me, and we really thank you guys. It's a super crazy, like, emotional dream come true. I put, like, 37 body pins in my hair to try to look nice tonight. And I forgot the belt. But uh, we're going to play one more song, maybe one or two more songs for you. And that's the true story of the three of us. And I hope you appreciate it. episode, we delve into the tracks Twang released in 1995. You can find Twang Twang Shockaboom on SoundCloud, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. He's in the army now. 
He wears army pants and he sings, give peace a chance. All that energy at that time is a river. Those stories yeah. all, all become a river of just, you know, goodness. With thoughts like this, my idea is a perfect bliss. Happiness is an army gun that my father is selling in an ice cold. See, I'm swatting melon. 